This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast about music from cardboard LPs. We are going to start this episode off, like every episode, with a little bit of trivia. All right, I'm going to start off the episode with an audio trivia round. So the quiz is going to include four clips, obviously from four songs. All I want you to do first is give me the artist and title. And then once you've gotten those, give me the theme. Okay. Now, the one thing is these songs are played backwards. Ooh. Okay. You used to love to do that sort of stuff to me. I've got to. You added math into this. So. <laughs> yeah, I did. That was, pretty, <laughs> that was pretty rough. Here we go. Okay. Track one. Track two. Track three. <laughs> Track four. Okay, mm. what do you think? I think you added math into this, because I have a 0% chance of getting this right. Oh, gosh. You think it's it's pretty hard? I think I've got two songs 
maybe three songs. I have to think about the theme. Sometimes it'll come to me. As a hint, the theme is going to be based on the song titles. So if you get a couple of them, you may be able to figure out the rest of it. It makes me think. I may, that just makes me think that the songs I'm, I picked out are wrong. So thanks. I hope that I hope they are shaking my confidence. Good. Okay. Well, I have a much uh, much uh, simpler quiz for you, and it does have a title. It's called "Cover Me." So here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply tell me if the band that I tell you is an actual Bruce Springsteen cover band, or is it one that I just made up? Okay. All right. Are you ready? There's a bunch of them. Yep. All right. The first one is, oh, and I put them alphabetically, so so there's no game theory about how they go, so they're, they're just okay. alphabetically. So Adam okay. raised a cane is first. <laughs> that would have been a good one. I should have thought of that. Now, the first one's just, I assume you pronounce it like this. One, two, three, four. That is something you made up. That is absolutely something I made up. Yep. Okay. Next one, B Street Band. They were formerly called the Backstreets. That's real. That is real. Next one, Blood Brothers. You made it up. That is a real one. That is a real one. Bruce in the USA. I'll go with real. <laughs> that is totally real. I did not make that up. All right, next one, Boss Time. You made that up. That is real as well. Oh, really? Boss yep. time? That's a good, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Next one is Candy's Doom. That's yours. <laughs> that's my metal, metal Bruce Springsteen band. Yeah. <laughs> Next one, E Street Shufflers. Real. That is fake. I made that one up. Oh, good one. That's nice. <laughs> Sounds got a nice ring to it. Next one is El Jefe. Real. That's fake, too. I made that one up. That's my mariachi Springsteen. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a good mariachi band. Which, I'd, say, I'd go see that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, next one. Hungry Hearts. Real. That is also fake. I made that up. Wow. Are there any other cover bands? <laughs> Springsteen cover <laughs> bands, or are you finished now? Yeah, just trying they're to all good. Go me There's only them. two, and I just made up the rest. Okay. Okay, here we go. Tramps Like Us. Real. That is real. The Rising. Real. <laughs> that is real. That's a horrible name. Uh-huh. Why would you... Anyways. Yeah. The River Wild. Fake. That is fake. I made that up. Saints in the City. Real. That is real. All right. And the last one. Springsteen Angst. That's fake. That is fake. I made that up. All right, you did pretty good on that. Whew. Thank you. I think for 50-50 guests, I mean, you got most of them. Yeah, I had a fun time thinking about like, okay, what would a Springsteen mariachi band sound like? Or what would a Springsteen metal band? Or a Springsteen punk band? That would, that's uh, Springsteen angst. Oh, okay, okay. He has a lot of cover bands. Okay, well, you did pretty good on that. I didn't, I didn't uh, fool you too much, so... I think it's time we got into turntable talk. Sounds good. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes. 
of my mind. On January 21st, 1977, Jimmy Carter pardoned the Vietnam War draft dodgers. This happened the day after Carter was sworn into office, and it was this single act that ended the career of a certain mingering Mike Stevens, who was a singer, producer, label owner, and movie director. For nearly a decade, Mike created a career of epic proportions with tenacity and dedication and precision. According to a website dedicated to him, here are just some of his credentials. Between 1968 and 1977, Mingering Mike recorded over 50 albums, managed 35 of his own record labels, and produced, directed, and starred in nine of his own motion pictures. In 1972 alone, he released 15 LPs and over 20 singles, and his traveling review played for sold-out crowds the world over. So how is it that a prolific career can be so lost upon the world? His storied life remained completely unknown outside of his own family for nearly 30 years. Worse than being simply forgotten, it was as if Mingering Mike never existed at all. Mike grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 50s and 60s, raised by his sister and her husband. Their mother had died when they were young, and their father had disappeared, and his sister raised Mike and their other siblings. This was an era, as often mentioned on this podcast, that revolutionized American music and its accessibility to a frenzied youth. Mike was in love with the music that was all around him. The air seemed to be filled with new, brash sounds that hurtled against complacency and comfort. Like a million other kids, Mike dreamed about making records himself and becoming a star. Mike would get odd jobs and spend his money haunting bargain bins, collecting LPs and 45s by The Impressions, Johnny Cash, James Brown, Marty Robbins, Dinah Shore, and more. With his older brothers, Carl and Roland, Mike went to shows at the legendary DC club called the Howard Theater. This is where the biggest R&B and soul stars would play. Mike's first concert at the age of 14 was Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Mike's brother Carl, at one point, was entrusted to park Sam Cooke's car And he took off with the keys and drove it around a little bit. He didn't know how to drive, but took it for a quick spin. And it was the first car he ever drove. Carl also somehow knew a lot of the Soul Stars, which is probably how he had been entrusted to the keys of Sam Cooke's car. He was friends with Marvin Gaye, Pearl Bailey, and Jackie Wilson, among others. Mike, however, never met even one of the stars his brother was connected with. He was too concerned that meeting them might spoil the illusion he had created in his head. Mike had a couple hurdles on his quest for fame and fortune. His family wasn't very well off and weren't going to be spending what little money they did have on instruments or recording equipment. The times he was able to buy tape recorders, they were cheap and sounded like crap. He and his brothers would perform songs he'd written, but he was always unhappy with the results. The other hurdle was shyness. Mike had a difficult time even talking about his recording dreams, and it seemed like performing them would be more than a struggle. These things didn't keep Mike from writing songs, though, and he says he's written about 4,000 songs. Seriously, 4,000. He was never sure how good they were or how they'd be received. He wanted an honest opinion from a professional to help him along. Mike saw an ad in a paper asking for songwriters to send in their songs, and if they were good enough, they'd be recorded by professional musicians. Does it sound familiar? 
If it doesn't, you should go back and listen to episode 34, in which we spend a lot of time discussing the song poem industry. Basically, there were, and probably still are, companies that would put out ads looking for songwriters to send in their lyrics. They claimed that if these lyrics were good enough, they'd be recorded by professional musicians and marketed. The scam was that every song was good enough, but there was no marketing. Instead, there was a fee request to record and press the songs, a fee that far outweighed the actual cost. The recordings were often great, and the people who recorded them were good at what they did, for the most part. But they'd be able to record dozens a day, keeping their costs low and duping many of the would-be songwriters. Mike saw one of these ads, but was skeptical enough to test them. He intentionally wrote a terrible song and sent it off. It was accepted, and when it was, Mike knew this option was useless. Mike's music would never be heard, which is not to say that the music wouldn't be made. Mike would have to forge his own path to stardom, or rather, forge a path to his own stardom. To do that, he would have to blur the lines between fantasy and reality, conjuring the American dream from his imagination and ingenuity. Around 1966, he dropped out of high school after attending for about a month. From then on, he was a loner, with days spent hearing only the voices from his stereo. Around that same time, he started creating homemade LP covers for songs he'd record in his family's bathroom where the acoustics were perfect. He lacked the ability to read music, and he wasn't coordinated enough to play any instruments, so he trained his vocal cords to replicate instruments for his recordings. Once recorded, if he deemed them worthy enough, he would take them into his bedroom and, using a reel-to-reel, record backup vocals on top. For those homemade record covers, he painted artwork on the front with felt-tip markers and ballpoint pens, and on the back he listed song titles and run times and names of players and producers, catalog numbers, and label names. He made a few of these over the next year or so with plans for these to be placeholders for future recordings. The covers took him hours to make. He's a good artist, and each cover was all its own. And then, in 1970, he was drafted. Mike reported to basic training, but very quickly went AWOL. He was a pacifist and more suited to being a recluse. Mike's sisters and brothers hid them in their house for the next decade. They often had multiple jobs each, which left Mike alone in the house most of the time. That's when his output exploded. Mike, like hundreds of thousands of others, had no interest in being sent off to war. Instead of heading to Canada, as so many did, he stayed in the house with his family helping to keep him hidden. It was in this period of near isolation that a world opened up inside Mike's head and erupted into reality. This world was populated with singers, actors, entertainers, politicians, and others who interacted with real celebrities like James Brown and Marvin Gaye. In fact, on Mike's first release, he included on the back a note from Jack Benny, very different than James Brown or Marvin Gaye, but Mm. still. And he had Jack Benny write, Mike is a bright and intelligent young man with a great, exciting future awaiting him. Jack Benny could spot talent. Mike made hundreds of album covers over the next nine years. He even included cardboard records, which he painted black with detailed grooves. On these records, he added track lines, which matched the runtimes he listed on the back. These albums were intricate, and they were specific. He had a detailed liner notes and reviews written by a bevy of real stars endorsing Mike for the genius that he clearly is. He also wrote 
the lyrics for thousands of songs, mostly about love and loneliness, but with anti-Vietnam sentiment at times too. At some point, his goal of recording albums switched to one of being famous to himself and in his own imagination instead of in the real world. The real world had critics and requirements for being known. He didn't want to struggle for years to reach a point where a record label forces him to write songs he doesn't want to write so they can score a hit. Dreaming of being a star didn't have a downside. He was in absolute control of his creations. In his fantasy, his debut album called Sitting by the Window had modest sales. He didn't start out as a star. Even in his own world, he earned it through releases and touring. So one thing I found out about him is that he and his family actually did perform a few times. So they put on like a review shows, like a variety show, and they would do it at old folks' homes and mental institutions and hospitals, and they would they would play. So that was the only place Mike ever performed in front of people. But even there, he didn't perform his own songs. He always did covers, and he turned up all of the instruments behind him so that nobody could even hear his vocals. He was hmm. so shy and reticent. It was crazy. But he did actually try to perform. Now, for each of his albums that he created, there were actual lyrics and songs kind of behind each one of those hundreds of albums. Is that correct? Yes. I, as far as I know, he had a song to match every track on every album that he created. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. Um, he says he had 4,000 that he wrote, uh, but 2,000 of them were lost in a flood at some point, which is he's very sad about even still. There's no way he's going to remember 2,000 songs. He had them all written down. Crazy. The name Mingering Mike made its debut on the third release, and this Mike was something special, a superstar. He loved the spotlight, which left real Mike to sit comfortably behind the scenes. Mingering Mike was created and was ready to take off. That's when the draft occurred, and Mike quickly went into hiding. His albums in the early 70s were funk classics, even imaginary funk classics, and addressed sickle cell anemia, multiple sclerosis, the dangers of alcohol. The hits started rolling in. Mingering Mike was crushing it, dominating the charts. On one album, he was performing live at the White House. Mike started cranking albums out and maintained an incredible output for five more years. In 1977, when Carter pardoned draft dodgers, the artist known as Mingering Mike retired as Real Mike got a job. Though he continued to think about Mingering Mike's success story, the homemade records ended up in storage. So in your research, like, how did he kind of come up with, with the songs and the albums? I mean, can you kind of describe, like, what they're like Yes. I mean, it, you can't describe what the music is like because there, there are very few clips left of anything he sang that he's let anybody hear. But the albums are really well made. And like I mentioned before, they are usually felt tip markers, homemade drawings, often a self-portrait of his head. Like, for example, the one he made right after he went AWOL was called The Two Sides of Mingering Mike. And it was two heads, one facing one way, one facing the other, kind of connected at the back of the neck. And one was Mingering Mike, and the other was Mingering Mike in an army hat. It's cardboard. The whole thing is painted orange. It's called The Two Sides of Mingering Mike featuring the Big D. And the Big (laughs) D 
is featured on a lot of albums, and that's a real person. Before Mike got drafted, he actually had a friend named Derek, who was a few years younger than him. So Mike was about 19, Derek was about 15. And at some point, Derek started talking about wanting to write songs without Mike ever saying anything about it. And that's when Mike kind of opened up a little to him and said, you know what, let's get together and start working on stuff. Uh, Mike went over to Derek's and they started working on recording songs that they had each written and they would play along with them. Derek had a violin, but beyond that, he didn't, neither of them had any instruments. Mike couldn't play any instruments. Um, He would make the sounds with his mouth of like, almost like the police academy guy of the instruments he needed. And he had gotten very good at it. So he could make flutes and guitars and piano with his mouth. And then there's also the violin that Derek would play. And then Derek would also use a phone book or a hair pick on a phone book that would serve as a drum. And Mike said that the drumming on that was just incredible because of the sounds he was able to create. And they would record stuff. And they even took a recording and they took it to a real label. And the label said they have no idea what what it is because the recording quality was so bad they couldn't really make out any of the lyrics, anything. So it might have been great, might not have been. They didn't get a chance after that to kind of fix that up because that's when Mike got drafted. Hmm. The record covers are amazing. They kind of they kind of remind me of like like kind of a a drawing that maybe a teenager might do. It's kind of stylized where it's not like super concerned about accuracy and mm-hmm. and and shading. They're done really well, I think, and they're very creative in how like how they would make a record cover, how they are a record cover. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of unmistakably his. And he's really funny with them. Like mm-hmm. the liner notes are funny. There's an album that he made for himself and Big D, and it's called Let's Get Nasty, uh, <laughs> Big D and Mingering, and it features the hit Stop It, Girl. And then on the front, it also says, Ohio players, eat your hearts out. <laughs> it's got, it's got like, the number, the catalog number. The record label for that is called Decision Records. It says it's in stereo at the top. It's got that perfect font that he wrote on there, That you know, the stereo in all caps that you know as soon as you see it. All of the ones that I've seen are all really great. There aren't any that I've seen that I would say, that that's not what I want to look at again. They're all really good, and they all have a lot of detail where you go back and look again, and you're going to see something new. There's just so much going on. And he didn't just make LP covers. He also made 45s, and he even made 8-tracks. And I'm not <laughs> sure. I, didn't see, I haven't seen a picture of the actual 8-track. I don't know how he created that. But the 45s look really good with those cool labels. Mm-hmm. He did a really good job with that, too. Have you seen the one that's on the beach with the sexorcist? I don't think so, no. <laughs> there are so many to look at. We're, of course, going to post some on our website, and we'll post a link to his site where you can see a bunch of them. But I don't feel like we've done justice explaining them, but they are really pretty magnificent. And they look like record covers. I mean, they, you know, you could see them being record covers from that time period, which is which is pretty great. We'll get into this in a moment, but it fooled a real crate digger, as we're just about to talk about. They looked like they could have actually been releases at the time. And I think part of that's a, a testament to the to the like the detail and the intricacy that was put into each of them, that they really seemed like releases. Yeah. And usually on this show, we do 
we'll do some sound clips, which is so much easier than just talking about how something looks like we did with the jazz covers. There are very few clips of Mike, his actual recordings. We're going to play one now, just so you can hear a little bit of it. So here you go. That was the real Mingering Mike recording that he made in his bathroom, and I have no idea what year that was. In 2003, Mike forgot to make a payment on that storage unit that had all of his records, the ones, the fake ones. He had a lot of his real records in there, so everything in the unit went up for auction. And the next day, they were sold at a flea market or put out for sale. Luckily, the right person found these records. There's a private investigator slash DJ, this is real, named Dory Hader, and he's a a crate digger, but he had been working all night. It got off around 4 a.m., and across from his office was a flea market that he liked to go look for records in. He went in at 5 a.m., first time he'd ever been able to get there that early because he didn't typically work all night, and he was the first one there. So he got to watch the records coming off the truck, people unloading them all, and so he got first crack at everything. And he starts going through all of these records, and he finds a pretty great stack of things that he'd been looking for. And then all of a sudden, he hits a crate that has about a dozen mingering mic releases. This is someone he's never heard of, and he he has a pretty extensive knowledge of Soul Records, and he just could not figure out how someone with so many releases had escaped his attention. And then he sees another box come through, another crate, and he goes through those, and there are a dozen more. There are just so many of these things all over the place, and he starts grabbing all of them. The covers were amazing. They really did at first fool him. He didn't realize that they were not real records until he pulled the record out and saw that the record was cardboard too. And then Hader realized very quickly that these were made with so much attention. They were clearly something very personal to somebody. So he bought every one of them with the intention of finding out more about this person and hopefully finding that person who made them. So when he returned home, he started posting information about the records on Soulstrut, which is a a huge forum for R&B and Soul crate diggers. And the people on there very quickly encouraged him to find a way to get those into a museum. They need to be preserved. Get them to the Smithsonian was even one of the comments. And it became one of the most, at the time, it was like the most commented on thread that Soulstrut had ever had. One other person who started making comments on there had also been to that same flea market that morning and had, had seen some of the records and bought those too. So he and Hader got together and they ran back to that flea market and found anything else they could find. So 45s, LPs, anything that they could get. Then they set off to try to find the real Mingering Mike. Luckily, again, Hader was a private eye. So he was able to find Mike's address pretty easily. Once he found where he lived, he went and he knocked on the door and it was answered by Carl. And he just said, is this where Mingering Mike lives? And Carl laughed and said, I haven't heard that name in a long time. 
He said he wasn't home, and then Hader left his number, and Carl said he'd give him the message. There was no response at all. He waited and waited. Nothing came. So Hader went back to the house, and he knocked on the door again, and this time someone else answered. The person looked suspiciously at Hader, and he asked again about Mingering Mike. Hader said that he had his albums and wanted to give them back, and he also wanted to know more about them. And Mike just lit up. He was so happy. And he said, specifically, you found my babies? (laughs) He was very excited. Hader and Mike then developed a friendship, and Hader was constantly trying to get him to allow him to get his records into galleries so that people could see them and enjoy them. Finally, Mike relented, but with the condition that no one ever know his real name, which is not Mike, by the way. Pretty sure. Hader ended up quitting his job, and started managing Mike so that he could get gallery shows organized and even tours around the world. Mike went to Liverpool to give a lecture. He was celebrated at an art symposium in Amsterdam. Everything he went to, he was in some kind of a disguise. I think you mentioned, Ryan, that you read he was in a disguise like as Spider-Man at some point. He accepted an award as dressed as Spider-Man. And then there was another one where he... um... He was giving a lecture or something. He was dressed like a doctor. And he, uh, at the end, he's like, I'll be giving out free uh, colonoscopies if anybody's interested. (laughs) He seems like a pretty funny guy just overall. Yeah. So eventually the Smithsonian was approached and asked if they would consider housing the art. They were, of course, thrilled and in 2015 had a huge exhibit featuring the work of Mingering Mike. The records are still on display there. And if you have a chance, you should go see them. I would personally love to go see them. Hader ended up publishing a book about Mingering Mike and includes pictures of the album covers and information about a lot of the releases and and Mike in general. He gained celebrity fans along the way. Famous uh, cultural appropriator uh, David Byrne wanted to find lyrics that Mike had written and release an album with his music. The problem was that Byrne wanted the rights to the songs, which meant very little money for Mike. Peter Buck released an album in 2015 that has a cover painted by Mike, which he hadn't done since the Mingering Mike albums of the 70s. Movie producers have expressed interest in making a movie about his fascinating life. Mingering Mike has gone from fictitious star to real celebrity. Finally. And the glory of it all is the box of cardboard records and homemade acapella recordings made by Mike the Man are more beautiful, pure, and heartfelt anything that Mingering Mike the star could have ever possibly made. Mingering Mike has rekindled our conversation about these world-building artists. You know, they're often, I guess you can call them outsider artists or art brute or naive artists or whatever. I I think the the name kind of changes, and I think sometimes it can be a little bit charged on what you call it. But somebody like Henry Darger or Howard Finster or St. Ohm, Bill Trailer, if, if you've heard of him, all these people that have this isolation, whether it's social isolation or mental health or even cultural, emotional isolation. And from that, they can, they create their own fantasy world. And what they create is just often so creative. It's, I guess, what you do when you're not worried about being discovered is, is just so much more real in a lot of ways than what you're doing if you know everybody's watching you. 
it's a way for these people to open up like nobody else ever can or that they can feel like because there's nobody else is going to see this according to them. So these things are huge and they're probably pretty cathartic to them on some level, but they're things that they would probably feel pretty vulnerable knowing that anybody saw these. And with Mike, it's the same kind of thing. He really didn't want these to get out, but I would imagine the same thing for Henry Darger where that was not his intent. He just had to get these out. Right. And I think that on top of that, the interesting part of his story is that, you know, when it was discovered, he was still around and it came back to him in a way where he could dictate a lot of how it got released and how he put his his vision out into the world. And I think that's that's a great thing because I don't think that's probably the normal story for that. No, I agree. I bet that there were probably a lot of other people who had been doing this and either their stuff was never found or they destroyed it before it could be found, like at the end. So we're lucky that not only that his stuff was found by somebody, but that the some the person that found it is somebody who took a lot of care with Mike and kind of got stuff out to people without without any insensitivity. He did a really good job and he wasn't going to do anything without Mike's permission. And they were just sort of partners in making sure that Mike was able to get the recognition he deserved uh, without feeling awkward in any way. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's truly kind of a, a feel good story or it's a silly trope to bring up, but it really is one of those things that there's no tragedy involved. You know, it's, it's great that everybody got to see this work and, and has access to it, but it was done in a way that's the artist is truly honored in a way that's doesn't change who they are, or who they want to be. Yeah, a movie about him is would be perfect. If you go onto YouTube, you can see clips of him talking at the Smithsonian, and he'll be the one dressed up as a doctor with something covering his face. Even <laughs> his even his girlfriend doesn't even know that he's mingering Mike. Like nobody except his family knows has any idea. That's so crazy. Yeah. Yep. And I think we're we're kind of diving into this, and we're we're going to kind of make a connection with the episode that we're going to do next, which is kind of talking about hoax bands, bands that are purposely changing their identity or persona or have some degree of uh, uh, deception. I think this is kind of a nice segue into that, even though that they're not exactly the same thing. I don't think he was trying to deceive anybody, but I think it's kind of a fun lead-in of, of this idea of what's authentic, what's fake, and how is what you put out there kind of a representation of who you are, what your ideas are? As a fan of subterfuge in general, I'm pretty excited about this next one. I think it's <laughs> going to be a lot of fun. I think this is not going to necessarily be in a totally uh, feel-good story. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hurt feelings at the end of it. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Gaines. <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait to, I can't wait for that part. I think we bring him up more than Guar now. Yeah, uh, Chris Gaines is our new Guar. Yep. And Guar was our new Eagles or Billy Joel. Yeah, there was somebody that we talked about at the beginning a lot too, and I forget who it is. We need kind of like a Hall of Fame, like a Highway Hi-Fi Hall of Fame of people we, we don't really like or listen to, but we end up talking about all the time. We like making fun of them. All right, are you ready to move on to some songs? Let's do it. Okay. 
All right, I'm up first. Uh, this song is called Gotta Keep Traveling. It's by a band called the Yaz and Naz. Gotta Keep Traveling, which was a private press record from 1968. The first uh, record label was Neo. Uh, It has been reissued by Lion Productions in 2014. That's what I have. This is just a great, cool private press record. Uh, The Yaz and Naz were kind of a a hip-type group. Three guys, three girls. The cover of the record is them just kind of like lounging around the swamp in, in full uh, late 60s gear. Uh, and it's it's kind of a strange record. It's kind of like garage folk rock is how I would describe it. It's um, kind of, you get your catchy, folky type stuff, but then there's just kind of a weird swamp guy singing who kind of sounds like... Bobby Charles or Tony Joe White or somebody like that. Anyways, um, the guys and girls kind of go back and forth singing. There's not a a ton to kind of say about it as far as like who they are or what. It, it's just one of those private press records that I heard a few th- when we were digging into private press real heavy. I read about the band in the um, Acid Archives book, and then I was at a record store somewhere and they had a pretty cheap version of the reissue and I said, oh, let me get that. And the, this is the 
the first track off that record and it's awesome. I love it. That's great. I had never heard it. I was going to ask you if it's in Acid Archives. I don't remember seeing it. Yes, it's it's they rave they rave about it in Acid Archives. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty um, well spoken of private press record. It's not you know you know how there's some that everybody seems to like. It's one of those. I'm glad you played that because I n- never would have known anything about it if it not if not for that. Yeah, it's one of those songs I kind of kind of sprung on you. It's hard to play you something that you haven't heard before, but. Maybe some other people out there hadn't heard of it. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. And and I'm sure they're, hopefully they liked it as much as I did. I'm up next, and the song I'm going to play is one that I've been wanting to play for a long time, but I didn't have the song on vinyl, and now I do. So what you're going to hear now is a song called Bones in the Ground by Robin Hitchcock. Bones in the Ground, take one, go in. One, two, Oh Vera, my sweet, I would offer you some meat In exchange for a good loaf of wax I would smear it on you and on all your apples too If I thought it would help you relax But the bones in the ground Well they never make a sound And the bones in the ground Are all fine And the bones in the air Well they haven't got a care And the bones in the air Are all mine Oh, shiny Maureen, won't you tell me where you've been And I'll work out where you should be now In a cluster of apes that do rub themselves with grapes You'll be tied to the back of a cow But the bones in the ground, well they never make a sound And the bones in the ground are all fine And the bones in the wind Lord have mercy how they grin And the bones in the wind Are all mine Oh poor little rain Won't you comment on my sprain and I'll shave you in some cosy church I don't care what you call I just wanna shave you bald and I'll know that I've finished my search but the bones in the ground well they never make a sound and the bones in the ground are all Sing a rattling air And the bones in the air Are all That was Bones in the Ground by Robin Hitchcock again from 1984, and I have it as a 12-inch EP on Midnight Music. 
And this was left off of the I Often Dream of Trains record, which is amazing all on its own. I wish it had had this song. Wish it had this song and then one other one from the EP called Winter Love is really good too. They could have easily been on that album. The whole album just seems to be very, very dark. It's a lot, It's about the autumn of your life, even though Robin Hitchcock was still pretty young at the time. It's mostly acoustic, and he plays all the instruments. And it came about after, obviously, after the Soft Boys broke up. He released one good album in 1981 called Black Snake Diamond Roll. It's pretty good. Not great, but good. And then he put out this horrible piece of crap called Groovy Decay. It's just terrible. And after that came out, and that's now, I mean, I'm not just saying that just to be a jerk. He has said he's never even listened to it. He doesn't like it so much that he won't even <laughs> listen to it and has never. So in 1982 is when that came out. And at that point, he left music. He went and he just picked up odd jobs. Like he was a gardener. He worked checkout somewhere at a store. And then in 1984, he came back with I Often Dream of Trains, and it was a return to the songwriting that he had with the Soft Boys, where it's got a lot of abstract stuff, it's a little bit dark, and it's it's my favorite of his albums. And he went on from there to make more great albums with the Egyptians. The Fegmania came out the next year, which is another mm-hmm. amazing album, and then um, all the way up through... I, in 1990, those are all really good albums. But Bones in the Ground is maybe my favorite Robin Hitchcock song of all time. It's something I actually sang to my kids as a lullaby. And I remember one point when when Max, who was at the time, I think, two, we were in a hotel room. And then at like two or three in the morning, all of a sudden, he sits up and he just says, the bones in the ground, and then he lays back down and passes out. So one of my favorite <laughs> memories. So that's Robin Hitchcock, and I finally got it on vinyl about a month ago. That's pretty cool. I love I, I love that song too. You've been putting that on mixtapes for a long time. I originally thought it was on the the album because on the CD it is right. They kind of yeah put that yep. EP on there. Yep, exactly. Uh, there are two reissues. There's one that came out that's basically it's got the ep and it has all of um, i often dream of train so it's perfect those four songs on the ep bells of rimney falling leaves winter love and bones on the ground are all great songs they all could have easily been on there the next thing i'm gonna play is a song by a guy named sorrels pickard and it's called the gates of hell ashes to ashes and dust to dust did you ever stop and think what that meant when a body's here then a body's gone have you ever wondered where it went when a body grows cold and it's laid in the ground And the smell of death is still strong Did you ever sit back And give it some thought And wonder where 
There's a long black cloud Hanging over your head It nearly covers the sky You'd better prepare To be on your way My friend You're going to die Weeping and wailing And gnashing of teeth You won't be able to hear But don't you feel lonesome You're not by yourself Your friends will be joining you there We're gonna take good care of you, man I know you're gonna look swell And you won't be needing that satin-filled coffin when they open the gate of hell Ah, we're gonna take good care of you, man I bet you're gonna look swell And I'm gonna sit back And I'll laugh at you <laughs> When they swing open the gates of hell All right, that was Sorrels Pickard with a song called The Gates of Hell, and I have that on a 7-inch that was from the label, it was called Stop Records, and it's from 1968. It was also on one of those Hillbillies in Hell releases, I think it was version 666, those that come out on Record Store Day, there's great collections of oddball country songs, it's on on one of those, but that's really hard to get. So this, this album is... Or this song is absolutely crazy scary. Like, it's so creepy. Uh, But Sorrel's Pickard is actually a peanut butter entrepreneur, believe it or not. (laughs) No, you're just making making up bullshit for this podcast now. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe I am. He's a peanut. He's He's a peanut butter entrepreneur. Of course. Oh, he's a... Clearly. Is his last name Peter Pan? His last It's Jif. <laughs> <laughs> so. His nickname is Skippy. <laughs> Skippy Jif, Peter Pan. So he was a peanut farmer and one of the creators of Sorrel's Pickard Gourmet Peanut Butter. And, and he lived in Florida. That's where I think that this was. And 
he just had an obsession with peanuts, apparently. And this is not just me making stuff up. He was crazy about peanut butter. One thing, it's hard to find a whole lot of information about him that doesn't just talk about peanut butter. But the <laughs> other thing that people talk about is that on that Ringo Starr album from 1970, it's called Buku of Blues. Yeah, yeah. Pickard wrote four of the songs on that album. Really? Um, none of them are the gates of hell, but they're still pretty good. And he also re- released an album where he, he played those songs on his own album later on an album called $15 Draw. I haven't heard him do that um, at all. This is the only thing I've heard by him. But it's it's pretty great. One time in 2000, he donated 100 cases of his peanut butter to the city of Oakland and its schools. And apparently that's that's enough for about 19,200 sandwiches. And he chose Oakland because of its prominence in peanut butter lore. And I have no idea what that means. But it surprised the mayor of Oakland, who admitted he had no idea that Oakland had peanut butter lore. Um, And, yeah, it was... So So he he just dropped off these crates of peanut butter to the mayor of Oakland saying, this is for your children due to your peanut butter lore. Yep, disregard that expiration date. (laughs) <laughs> that's not real and then no like, yeah, butter doesn't go bad that's a pretty huge donation I think that's pretty great <laughs> <laughs> and he died in, in 2003 but he's known for peanut butter and Ringo Starr two great things that go great together oh, man that's so great <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was making that up I'm not that creative and you had a pretty, kind of cool story about how you, didn't you just kind of randomly pick that up at a yes, record fair? Yes, I was at a record fair with uh, with our friend Zach. Went to this record fair in Chicago, and towards the end of the day, everybody started marking down 45s and LPs. And so this box that had kind of 5 to $10 45s turned into a box of dollar forty-five. So I picked anything that looked weird, and this was one of them. And it's, it is one of the coolest songs I've ever heard. I love it. Yeah, when we were talking, I don't think it's any secret to anybody who's listened to the podcast. Joe and I at some point would love to start a record label. And when you when you found that and you, you sent it to me, I said, oh, man, that's so great. We got to get that out again. Of course, the the hillbillies in hell had already beat us to it. But Good for them. Great that's song. a good find. Yeah, good, good oh, find. Oh, and I mentioned that he was very briefly that he was an actor. And for those of you who remember the 1984 film Hard Bodies, he was in it. (laughs) I remember it. Classic. How could you forget it? Okay, I'm going to uh, finish this up with a song by a gentleman named Johnny Frierson, and the song is called Have You Been Good to Yourself? A lot of people, they work too hard. 
A lot of people depending on drugs. A lot of people they go too far. A lot of people don't rest enough. A lot of people not eating right. A lot of people not eating right. Reminded of this song after getting into Mingering Mike, uh, and you'll see why in just a bit. Uh, this is a Light in the Attic release from 2016. It's a reissue of a cassette tape. They reissued it on vinyl, but it, originally it was a cassette tape. So Johnny Frierson uh, was kind of a uh, guy who just kind of hung around the Memphis scene, the Memphis music scene, uh, the R&B scene. He was in uh, a mid-60s uh, Stax uh, four-piece called the Drapels. That group also contained his sister, Mary Frierson Cross. She changed her name to uh, Wendy Renee and had a pretty big oh. uh, song called After Laughter Comes Tears, which was co-written by Johnny. I'm a big fan of her. She's great. 
Oh yeah, she's she's that, that song is fantastic. I think Light in the Attic also reissued her stuff, but uh, she had that single, and then she kind of did some background stuff, and he was mostly just doing background stuff, and then he um, got sent to Vietnam. He he went to Vietnam and he came back and he basically spent a couple decades out of the music business. Um, eventually, he kind of got back into it and released a a gospel single. But he was mostly just a kind of a working guy. He had a bunch of jobs and he'd occasionally play at local clubs. In the nineties, early nineties, he was a um, a host for a gospel show on a local radio station in Memphis. And at some point, he changed his name to Kafeli Ajunaku, um, and that's what he kind of, when he released music, he kind of used that name. So basically, this album is him just recording himself with a simple tape recorder. It's just basically an electric guitar and vocals on, that he recorded to a uh, tape recorder, and he self-released these cassettes, selling them at festivals or corner stores around Memphis. And so this was early 90s. What had happened is that a uh, crate digger um, named Jam- Jameson Swigger found this this tape called Have You Been Good to Yourself that was released under the name Kafeli Ajunaku in a Memphis uh, thrift store. And he knew enough about the scene that he figured out it was Johnny Frierson. He took it home and listened to it, and it was amazing. <laughs> um, and so he... He kind of sang praises, and and he he got it to light in the attic, and they they released it about five years after Frierson died in two thousand ten. So he he didn't get to see his at least his self released cassettes kind of kind of blow up at least a little bit. The whole the whole record is a great kind of electric gospel record. Um, like I said, it's all him singing with an electric guitar. But this song is one of my favorites, and I, I think the story of Mingering Mike obviously had bear some resemblance um, to Johnny Frierson, so I thought this would be a good one to play on the show. Nice. Another another great one that I had not heard at all. Good wow, job. Two for two, Stumpin' Joe. Yeah, it's good. yeah. It's funny how those, how crate diggers, I've known a lot of them, and they're kind of the good ones, all have a, an encyclopedic memory of things like names and figuring out who is who, and they have images of faces so they can figure ah, i can't do that like i can I remember just, a lot of silly things but i can't just do that I, I don't even know what drawer my socks are in i can't do that. <laughs> yeah i am so grateful for great crate diggers uh i really am you know they find amazing stuff that's probably my favorite music i don't you know unfortunately i'd like to do that a little bit more but just don't have the resources to do that you know whether it's time or you know time away from the family or or just the knowledge that I would need. But, you know, I really do appreciate that there's these people who go out and, and find music, and I appreciate it even more when they, they tend to be decent people and try to get money to the hands of the artist and not just, you know, kind of exploit them. Which I don't, I think if you love music and you're, and you're spending all this time looking up the stuff, hopefully that's not your intention is to make money on it, but you're doing it for the music. And a lot of them end up, like, putting letting their music let those 45s be borrowed by people who are doing remasters and reissues which is awesome they yes. let or they'll have people come over and record them or they'll send them off to be recorded that's it's great some of them are such good 
writers and they have so much information in their head. It's it's fun to read what they're writing about music to hear all the stuff that there's almost no way you would know. Absolutely. So we're going to uh, answer, uh, or I'm going to attempt to answer trivia. It may be, may be ugly, but first we want to play a uh, little clip from uh, one of our friends. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. All right. Um, and that was from Boris, who we've mentioned before for the See Here podcast. This is another podcast of his. He just makes me feel like I'm incredibly lazy. <laughs> Couldn't be a nicer person. He seems like just one of the finest human beings around, and he has two great podcasts. Definitely check that one out. All right. Are you ready to be taken out? Yeah, go go ahead and play them again for me. Okay. Act one. <laughs> Track two. Yes, Track three. Track four.
So what I'm looking for, I would like to have the name of the song, name of the artist, and then let me know if you figured out the theme. Okay. I think the first song is The Pogues' Sally McLennan. It is The Pogues. The song is called Boat Train. Boat Train? Okay. Boat Train from Pogetry Emotion, I think. All right. The second song, I don't know. I'll come back to. The guitar part sounds so familiar. It's a song that you know and like a lot. You have mentioned to me that on the album that this is on, this is maybe your favorite song on the album, I think, if I remember right. Uh, I talk a lot. (sighs) The Ohio River Boat song? That one, no. It is not. (laughs) I I hope there's not another one that is that... I don't know what the third song is either. I think okay. it might be Blur Song 2. It is. I don't know. Okay, it is. Good. Yep, yep. Um, and then the fourth song, <sighs> Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Ohio? Yes. Okay. So now the theme so, is based on the title. Okay, Ohio River Boat Song. There you go. That's it, which is a Will Oldham song. So that's got to be something river. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wish I could listen to it again. Um, river, river. They call me River Boy. Oh gosh, Waylon River Boy. It's, uh, Waylon Jennings with River Boy from probably around 1970. Oh, that is one of my favorite. That is one of my favorite songs. Oh my gosh, I love that song. I knew that. I knew the guitar. Like I just wasn't in the right headspace for that. It's funny that you actually guessed Ohio River Boat Song. That so is- I got the theme right. You did. Yep. Okay. The first. Good. Yep. So screw you. I did it. I went with the the first word of each of the titles is ends up being Boat River Song Ohio. But if you rearrange it, it's yeah. Ohio River Boat Song, which is a song by yeah. Will Oldham when he was under his palace moniker. I, I'm sure the you know, I got that because I was looking at it Song Ohio, like on my screen that I wrote notes for. So well that's good. I don't even need to know the songs to get the theme. I'm just that powerful with uh, music trivia. As always, please go and support some record stores, um, support record labels that are independent, artists who are trying to make it on their own, record record stores that are trying to make it on their own. You know, just, uh, you know, you have a choice of how to spend your money, and we always want to encourage you to take care of the people who are making music and art that you love. Uh, It's really important, and we never want to miss an opportunity to encourage you to do that. I've done my part this past couple weeks, spent a ton of money on records. <laughs> and wasn't there, you mentioned that you found a really good record store. Oh too. yeah. Yeah. So we went to Savannah. So I went to a store called Graveface, and I walk in and um, talk to the owner who's in a bunch of great bands and he he runs the record store he also runs a couple labels one of them is called Grayface another one puts out kind of horror soundtracks so he was a super nice guy made some recommendations i bought a couple records from his label and uh, found some other cool records there uh, the store itself is fantastic it's it's like a curiosity museum too so it had Bunch of great posters and you know horror movie stuff. It had a signed Tanya Harding skate, which I <laughs> took a picture of and sent to Joe. Just kind of yeah, it's pretty good, without, pretty yeah. awesome. 
So uh, if you're ever in Savannah, you should definitely check out Graveface. What records did you get from their actual label? Uh, the uh, Haley Bonner, the album was Last War, and I've listened to the first first half of it. It's great. The owner kind of said that, you know, she's got this great voice, and this is her kind of delving into a more kind of like garage poppy B-52s type vibe. And it, and it really, that's a very accurate description. It was great. And then they, they just released a new one, which is more shoegaze, um, electronic ambient ambient type stuff. And it was the, uh, the debut release by a band called Who or H-O-O. It's called Centipede Wisdom. And I've listened to that and it's fantastic. So he played, he was, he was playing at the store and then I was like, ah, I'm just going to go ahead and pick it up. It sounds great. Anyways, if you're in Savannah, uh, definitely go check that place out. I spent a couple hours there. It was fun. When you go to a great record store, it's just, it just kind of clicks in and it was a place that I felt real comfortable and, and like I was, you know, spent as much money as I could there, as much money as I <laughs> could without feeling totally guilty. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody for listening. Yeah, we will see you next time.